We have John on the line here. What would you like to ask him? Yeah. Hey, John. One thing I'm trying to figure out right now is it's obvious the world's changed in the past few months. Does your strategy have to change? And if so, what does it have to do? There's a difference between strategy and tactics. If you're changing strategies a lot, you may not have the best strategy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, your goals really shouldn't shift, right? Your strategies should be pretty sound as far as how you plan on getting to that. But the tactics, on the other hand, they should shift. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investments. This is journal entry number 11. In this episode, I talk with John Kasman and Cameron Roy. Keep listening for a discussion on strategy versus tactics and the one tactic that will stand the test of time. And now, this show. Hey, this is Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. I'm very excited for today's show. This is one of our Ask the Expert episodes, and we have two very amazing people on the line with us today. Somebody with a ton of experience in marketing, multifamily syndication, and host of an amazing podcast. We've got John Kasman here. We also have a very motivated and energetic aspiring investor, Cameron Roy. So first, I'd like to just read John's bio, let you guys know what, uh, what he's done and, and who he is. John is a real estate entrepreneur who has partnered with business professionals to invest close to $90 million worth of apartments. John hosts the Target Market Insights podcast where he covers multifamily and marketing insights. In addition, he's also the co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit, a no-pitch event to connect like-minded investors. And with a background in marketing, he's overseen campaigns for General Motors, Nike, Coors Light, and many others. John was even recognized by Black Enterprise Magazine as one of the top executives in advertising and marketing. Wow, John, that's impressive. That said, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian, thank you for having me on the show. Really excited to talk to you and your audience today. Yeah, thanks a lot. So first of all, let's talk about this event you have coming up. Understand it's later this month. It's the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this year, it's going to be a virtual event. So you don't have to actually come to the Midwest just to check it out, even though we we certainly want to make sure that we invite people to come check out the Midwest whenever they get a chance. But this is a virtual event. So all over the world, you can check out this experience. And essentially what this is, it's an event for real estate investors by real estate investors focused on networking. So whether you are looking to build the connections you need to do your next deal, to scale, to learn the strategies and tips that the best investors are employing right now, it's a great platform to do that. And because this is virtual, one of the things that we try to really focus on is making sure we focus on the networking aspects of it. So Mm -hmm. we're actually running this through an app that allows you to connect with other participants prior to the event starting, throughout the event, and you can actually access all of the content six months prior to the event, including contacts and other folks mm-hmm. that you can connect with. So this is a great opportunity for anyone who's looking to connect with people who can help you build your business and take it forward. Nice. So focus on people who are interested in, in Midwest, but uh, since it's virtual, anybody can sign on. 
Yeah, and it's not limited to the Midwest. It's just for us, when we originally started, you know, anytime I went to a great real estate event, it had to be, you know, out west or down south, or we just didn't have those kind of events in the Midwest. So mm-hmm. it was mostly from a geographic standpoint. The only events that came to Chicago were, you know, the TV gurus, right? You would get somebody from HGTV, from Flip This House, whatever, and they would come out to Chicago and try to teach people how to invest in real estate. And we just saw that it was a lot of uh, uh, misleading or a lot of pop and sizzle, but not a whole Mm -hmm. lot of steak. And we wanted to bring the meat. We wanted to come to the city and bring an event that actually gave real actionable insights and bring in people who were actually investing today and providing real-time feedback as opposed to just trying to sell you some program at the end of it. So this is a no-pitch event. It's truly about information, insights, and the connections you need to take your business to the next level. Nice. Now, before we recorded, I hopped on the website. You know, I, I think you've got an amazing lineup of speakers available. Can you tell everybody where to find out more information about this? Absolutely. So we have a great lineup of speakers, as you said, Brian. If you want to learn more, you can just go to MidwestRESummit.com. You'll see a lot of familiar faces, some great speakers, and uh, you'll learn more about the virtual event. Awesome. Yeah. And that information will be in the show notes for anybody listening to the podcast, but uh, there it is. Now, something else that, uh, that I'd like to you know, congratulate you on is you just hit your 200th episode of your Target Market Insights podcast. Wow. I mean, 200. That's a lot of commitment, a lot of time put on that. Yeah, definitely a lot of time, a lot of commitment. And it's one of those things where you hit thresholds, right? I mean, you hit the, uh, I think you're at that point where you're hitting the threshold where most people stop, right? So once Mm -hmm. you get to a certain threshold, now you're a podcaster for real. It's not just something you dabbled into, but you've actually done it. And once you make that commitment to stay on, you just keep going. So it's one of those things, just like anything else, where once you start putting out episode after episode, you want to maintain and grow. And I will Mm -hmm. tell you this, I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but it didn't start off as hot as I initially thought it was going to. And it took a while to build and to grow. And, you know, you have to pivot. You have to listen to your audience, listen to the feedback that you're receiving. But we've been able to do that. And we're really proud of the show we've built. And we do believe that we are serving kind of a a marketplace and providing some insights that's a little bit different than what most other podcasts are presenting right now. Mm -hmm. So we're really excited to hit 200 episodes and look forward to the next 200. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, I mean, Cameron is going to start a podcast or two soon. And I'm sure he may have some questions about that later. But I've listened to it for, for a while. I've followed you on LinkedIn for a while. I think, you know, amazing content, you know, and I'd, I'd recommend anybody go ahead, pick up your phone, find a Target Market Insights podcast and, and give it a listen. So that, that said, let's talk a little bit about your background, you know, who you are and your history up until where you decided to actively pursue a career in apartment investing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, coming out of school, I was really fond of marketing. Um, I learned a lot about marketing and communications and messaging. And that's really the career field I chose. So I was working at advertising agencies. I actually got a job at General Motors when my old boss got promoted. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a great time. You know, I mean, I started working there. I'm doing all the fun stuff. I'm going to photo shoots and video shoots and Maxim parties and Super Bowl and all super fun stuff, especially yeah. for a, a mid 20s single guy, right? And what ended up happening is right around 2008, you guys know what happened in 2008. Yep. So Market I was crashed. at GM in Detroit Ooh. in 2008. So it kind of started with 
what I thought was just our company, right? We were just mm-hmm. having some financial issues and it started with the big three. And that slowly turned into, this isn't just an automotive issue. This is an overall US economics issue. This is a recession. This is all these things that, you know, I never experienced as an adult. And the big thing for me was, you know, once we knew we were going to go into kind of a structured bankruptcy, I didn't know what was going to happen with my job. I didn't know what was going to happen with my life. And I thought back to, you know, books I've read before, in particular, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I thought about, you know, the principles of that book. And I recall distinctly sitting at my desk and it was the day they were doing a lot of layoffs and there was a red light on my phone. I was really nervous about pushing that red light and checking that (laughs) voicemail. I waited about 20 or 30 seconds and I finally picked it up, pushed the button, listened to it. And it was actually from a a colleague who had been let go. Mm -hmm. And he was just, you know, venting and his frustration of what happened and the uncertainty that he was facing. What was he going to do? He had spent 22 years working for this company. He had planned to retire from this company. It's all he knew. It was the only plan he ever had. And at that moment, it just struck me without a doubt that I never wanted to be in a position where working a W-2 job was my only plan. And that if something happened to that W-2 job, I would be lost. So at that moment, I, I kind of made a mental decision to say, you know what, I need to find another way to, to get some passive income. I don't even think I called it passive income. At that time, I was just thinking, I need another source of revenue. Mm-hmm. So I'm not solely dependent on this job. So it yeah. took a little while to get going. I, I kind of knew real estate was where I wanted to go. It kind of took a minute to actually do that first investment. But that was the moment where it crystallized for me to say, I don't want to be in this position where I feel powerless and a company or an executive or someone else has full control over whether or not I get the medicines that we need or my mm-hmm. family eats. Yeah, you know, and that that's so true. I mean, as loyal as a person is to W-2 income and as secure as that W-2 income is, I mean, it doesn't take much for companies to downsize, you know, a little correction or a recession or a merger and, you know, pink slips go out the door. I'm in a fairly safe profession as far as that goes. You know, I'm, I'm a government employee, but it's also very politicized. You know, if, if there's a downturn, you know, military spending gets cut pink slips go out. And, you know, we lived that, you know, just after Iraq, Afghanistan, it doesn't matter how safe and secure you think your W2 income is, you're one step away. So. No, I think you're spot on. And that's the challenge, right? It doesn't matter what you do. Mm-hmm. It really comes down to just recognizing you, you don't have full control yeah. and it's okay if you have that. And if you have a great job now and you want to work that job the rest of your career, I'm not saying quit and go start real estate. What I am saying is it's a great time to create passive income streams so you have options whether yeah. you know that may change three years from now maybe something happens physically to you or maybe you know um, you have a parent that you decide you want to take care of or whatever the case may be the point is is that you want to have options you want to create options and finding avenues that allow you the flexibility from a from an income standpoint is really the thing that became a priority for me yeah I think that resonates with a lot of people you know I, I think there's that point for, for many. And, and for me, it was about two or three years ago where I realized that, you know, I'm getting close to my 20 year mark and I'm eventually not going to have this job. You know, everybody has to get out of the Marine Corps at some point and that income would dry up. So I, I think that that's very common. You briefly discussed it already. You talked about it, you know, so in a nutshell, what is your why for investing in, in real estate? And we've already, you know, kind of brushed upon this topic already. Yeah. I mean, I I think for me, the why 
is twofold. Mm -hmm. The first why was call it financial freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Or economic empowerment, however you want to frame it up. But it was for me to have the flexibility to not have to depend on a W-2 job. What I would say though, is that as time went on, as my family dynamics changed, as I I had my two boys, that why became more powerful. And this is something a lot of people don't understand. Financial freedom, and this may be controversial, (laughs) but financial freedom is selfish. And the reason I say that is financial freedom is about you. It's about I've made enough money or I have enough passive income to not need a W-2 job. I'm good. I will now go do whatever I want to do. Yeah. When you get into what we focus on, which is multifamily investing, in particular multifamily syndication, this is more about trying to create a legacy and trying to help others, not just my family, not just me, but my children hopefully my children's children and other families that are looking to, you know, create financial freedom or to create legacies for their families. So that's one of the reasons that I went to the multifamily syndication side and it wasn't intentional right away. It just slowly started to build into that because I like multifamily because again, there's more wealth creation potential there versus Mm -hmm. say a couple of rental properties. But as you realize that you can help other people, you can serve other people, that's when you realize, hey, it's not just about me getting you know, $10,000 a month or whatever that number is for you in passive income and you're good and you're set and you can go travel the world or do whatever you want to do. But it's how do I actually set up the next generation? How do I set up my peers, you know, yeah. my family, my friends, other folks in my network? How do I impact my community? How do I make an overall capital impact with what we're doing with our time on this planet? And that's where it kind of became a, a bigger cause, I guess you could say. Yeah. You know, and there, there's a Zig Ziglar quote I love, and I think it, it very much characterizes, you know, the syndication business. He says, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but paraphrasing, he says, you know, you can get anything you want in this life by helping enough other people get what they want. And that's exactly what the syndication business is like. I mean, we are providing investment opportunities for other people and they're able to passively invest and, you know, make double digit returns on their money. So we are absolutely helping other people. And the more other people we help, the easier it is for us to reach, you know, our goals and our own financial freedom. So, yeah, I don't think what you said was controversial at all. I think you're right. Financial freedom aspect is you know, I want to be free. I want to live my life how I want. And you're right. That is a little selfish. But with the syndication game, you have to be able to make other people's life better or you're going to fail in this business. So I like it. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, you know, deals and projects that you've done. Um, you know, I'm sure there's many to choose from. You, I think you're close to $90 million worth of, of apartment communities. Uh, so can you give us a, a brief snapshot of some of the things you've done? Yeah. So, I mean, we've done a, a few different things, you know, everything from kind of our own deals where we kind of oversee all aspects of the operations to partnering with select operators mm-hmm. where we come in as general partners and help with marketing, investor relations and, and different tasks there. So a recent deal that we did last year was a 172 unit deal where we came in and kind of really looked at the marketing plan, made some, you know, some gave some feedback to what the plan was and came in and helped with investor relations, some marketing aspects, and uh, some ongoing consultation with the team there. And that's a deal that's working out really well for us right now, even through COVID-19, it's doing really well. And I have another deal, you know, a deal locally here in, in Cincinnati that has been more of a challenge, but mm-hmm. um, honestly, it's been a, a great opportunity to 
expand and just kind of grab that bull by the horns to an extent because this is a smaller deal. So, and mm-hmm. one of the things that we realize is, you know, these smaller deals are in some ways more chaotic than the larger deals because there's just not enough cash flow around. There's not enough money to go hire a full-time on-site person to yes. be at the property all day, every day. You know, the numbers, the margins are a lot slimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just a lot more things to, to manage and to oversee and you don't have the ability to, you know, have big budgets to, to oversee it. I'll take yeah. it back to corporate America. You know, you know, when I was in corporate America, I had a eight figure budget, you know? So, I mean, I, in, at times I had a nine figure budget. Yeah. So, wow. you know, if you've got a nine figure budget, it's, I'm not gonna say it's easy, but your job is to manage the flow of the money and making sure you're, you're adjusting the investments, but you stay at a macro level. You're yeah. staying at a managerial level. When you're dealing with you know, a 20-unit property, you really can't stay at that high level. You have to get into the minutia about, you know, well, how did the showing go? And, you know, okay, well, what about this? Or what did y'all use for this? And, well, let me show me pictures of the units. And, I mean, you really have to get into the weeds on the smaller properties because you have to ensure quality. And part of that is also building the processes and systems. But again, when you're dealing with smaller properties, you don't have the sophisticated property management partners Mm -hmm. that have great systems in place. A lot of times you have to actually help them with the right systems and processes to actually be effective. Because if you're really good as a property manager, you're not going to spend most of your time on a 20 unit, you're going to go to a hundred unit. You're going to go yeah. to a hundred unit class B, class A property because they're easier. You're going to make more money on it than doing a 20 unit, you know, class C plus or B minus property. So just understanding the dynamics. And that was an earlier deal that we did, but just want to compare and contrast like some of the differences of doing a smaller deal where maybe you have to be more hands-on, you have to be more accountable. You have to kind of keep your team together versus a larger deal where because of the amount of money that's around the, the amount that you can kind of pay people and you can just really oversee it from a managerial standpoint versus being more hands-on. You know, that resonates a lot with me. You know, we, we got off our uh, company call today, you know, it was a, a morning call and you know, we've got a 33 unit that we are spending an enormous amount of time on trying to get it managed for the same reason. You know, we, we just, uh, we also have an 80 unit with on-site management and we're, we're paying a little more for the on-site management there than, than normal, but the amount of time we put into the 30 unit is probably two to three times as much as we're putting into the 80 unit because it's a different property manager and it's a property manager that owns, you know, uh, this, this management company owns several thousand doors of their own that they manage. Plus they manage somewhere along 20, 30,000 doors total. So, you know, you're, you're looking at the scale and the scope of what they do. They have everything down to a science, whereas our 30 unit, you know, they wouldn't touch that. So, Good, good. Well, a lot of insight there. Um, so, John, what's next for you in, in Casman Capital? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is we are definitely in acquisitions mode. So we are looking for opportunities, primarily in the Midwest, but mm-hmm. uh, we are certainly looking for investment opportunities. We've started working with other investors as well. So starting to do some consulting. So we have that with the Capital Impact Club. So anybody can go and, and research that if you want. Um, and really just trying to help people, you know, help other people, you know, <laughs> like we kind of talked about a little while ago, but really trying to say, how do we serve people? How do we serve passive investors? How do we serve other active investors, those folks who are starting out? And really trying to make sure that we are giving value to other people. And ultimately, we know that we'll see that back in our business. So focusing on those things are really what we're focusing on right now. Nice. 
All right. Well, we have uh, Cameron on the line here. Let's uh, introduce him. Uh, Cameron Roy is co-founder and managing partner at Golden and Roy Capital, which is a multifamily syndication company focused on value-add properties in Texas. He's a Texas Tech graduate and worked in sales for several years. In his full time, he's flipped a few homes and he's recently shifted his focus to learning about multifamily investing. Now, very bold move, burning ships. He's quit his job to work full time pursuing multifamily investing, which I think will pay dividends. So that said, Cameron, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here and let's get going right out of the gate. The ship burner. I like it. Yeah. Burning those ships, you know. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a level of commitment. You know, a lot of people will dabble, you know, in this and, you know, I, I see, see a lot of flashes in the pan, you know, I, I've been, um, you know, I, I got into Michael Blanc coaching and he's got his, his little mastermind that, that he runs that uh, I participate in. And I see a lot of people that are flashes in the pan, but uh, to do what you've done, I think shows a lot of commitment, you know, and that level of commitment should, you know, eventually pay, pay a lot of dividends for you. Um, yeah, I, I hope it does, man. It's uh, it's been fun so far, so we'll see. Well, good. Well, hey, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and history, you know, and, and what brought you up to the point to where you were willing to quit your job to do multifamily? Yeah, so I'm from a small town in West Texas, uh, oil, cotton field kind of place. Mm-hmm. In that community, great people, great culture. Went to Texas Tech, studied business management. I took a, a year stint. And I went to seminary in Denver, Colorado for a year. Okay. My wife and I we started dating at that time and she was starting nursing school in Lubbock and the distance thing just wasn't working out for us. So I moved back to Lubbock to mm-hmm. be with her. And in that time, a buddy of mine reached out, him and his dad were essentially flipping homes, um, rehabbing homes and asked if I wanted to work with them. He was about to go into the army. I said, sure. Like that sounds awesome. Chip Gaines rock. So why not be him in Lubbock? And so did that. And it was fun. That was kind of my exposure into the real estate world. I didn't know much about it. And my wife and I got married moved to Dallas where we're at now. We wanted to start our marriage off here and I wanted to stay doing that, but I just didn't know the Dallas market. I didn't know anybody. I was newly married, broke, needed a job. And so I took a job um, with a company in sales and uh, over the span of three years um, about, you know, really learned how to sell and, and learned a formal process and put a lot of my personality into something structured and did well there, enjoyed it. Met my now business partner through that company mm-hmm. and Towards the end of 2018, I caught luck or divine grace. I got my hands on some educational content. I think Robert Kiyosaki's already been mentioned by John, yeah. but um, picked up the cash flow quadrant. And that's where my mind was exposed to apartment complex investing, multifamily, big commercial real estate. I didn't know before that that people owned apartment buildings. That was something I never heard of. And when I saw from a macro level, what owning apartment complexes could look like and do for you, your family, your friends, um, your community. I was really bought in. So started learning and learning and learning. Talked to my now business partner. We met up over some good torches tacos, decided <laughs> to develop a business. And we spent all of 2019 learning. So we knew from a macro level what we wanted to do. We just didn't know the micros, like the word yeah. syndication. I didn't know that was a word. I had to learn it. So we had got a mentor and learned and Towards the end of this year, felt confident enough to actually start moving and we didn't want to get analysis paralysis. And so we decided like, let's start building broker relationships. Let's start developing a business plan. Let's start building an investor pipeline. And in February this year, really wanted to accelerate the growth of our business. Talked to my wife, some wise counts in our lives and 
we're in a financial place where I could just quit my day job and we took a 100% pay cut so I could do this full time and grow it. And I understand the risk associated, yeah. especially cause I quit three weeks before COVID hit. But <laughs> I think if I would have stayed there, my, you know, extreme conservative mind would have kicked in and thought, okay, I just need to keep this job and keep the cash flow coming and work on this. You may have thing on the cleaning side. instead of, you know, yeah, I understand yeah. that. So now we're trying to get our first owner belt and I'm here to yeah. learn, connect and grow. So let's talk a little bit about your why, you know, why is the uh, multifamily appealing enough that you quit your job and, and what is it that you want to achieve with this? Yeah. So like John, mine is twofold as well. And the first one is just freedom. You know, I want to control my time. I want time freedom. I want financial freedom. And John was hitting on this as well. Option freedom. Mm-hmm. I want to have options in my life and not be burdened by the finances that wouldn't allow me to get there or take some great risks or great investments in my life. And also I picked this up from a old wise man in my life. And he said to me one time, the purpose of my life is to help people reach their full potential. And I adopted that. The greatest times of my life has been whenever I've been able to play a key part in somebody's success, whether that's just getting off the couch, closing a sale, mending a burned bridge or whatever. And I love helping people and I found that through multifamily real estate, a lot of people could be helped either in their financial goals, their freedom goals, or their personal goals. And I'd love to provide opportunity for people to reach those, whatever they may be. Nice, nice. I appreciate that. Well, Cameron, we have John on the line here. What would you like to ask him? Yeah. Hey, John. Um, good to meet you earlier. And I've enjoyed listening to your story. It's been awesome. Um, hopefully, one day I could be in your space. Um, be awesome, man. So, one thing I'm trying to figure out right now is it's obvious the world's changed in the past few months. And from your opinion, does that mean that your investment raising strategy has to change to, you know, for investors capital and building that pipeline for the next great deal? Does your strategy have to change? And if so, what does it have to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It's one of those things where there's a difference between strategy and tactics And if you're changing strategies a lot, you may not have the best strategy. (laughs) So, I mean, your goals really shouldn't shift, right? Your strategies should be pretty sound as far as how you plan on getting to that. But the tactics, on the other hand, they should shift. So, and, and not to, this may be in the weeds for some people, but I think it's really important to understand that your strategy is just how you get from point A to point B, you know, or overall what that approach is. The tactics are the specific ways that you're going to do it. So to your point, my strategies haven't really shifted when it comes to raising capital or working with investors or things like that. Some of the tactics I do think may need to adjust. So, you know, when it comes to where you get the investors, what conversations do you have with them? How do you vet them? What concerns do they have? What questions are they asking today that maybe they weren't asking three months ago or four months ago? Also, as you go through it, it's understanding how do you help these people versus trying to just focus on what you're getting out of it. Because some people, they may be in a different position. If they're in an industry that is exposed or they have the potential to need money or to, to remain more liquid, maybe that's a conversation you should have with them. You know, Maybe they need to look at other avenues first to refinance a current home or to move money out of the stock market. So there may be things that they need to do from a holistic standpoint to make sure that they're on solid footing. But as far as the things that we do, it's just really been more empathetic to understanding what's going on in their lives, the way they're thinking about things. Are they being, you know, 
opportunistic right now to say, hey, listen, we think there's going to be chances in the market to go out there and do some great deals, or are they being conservative and they want to sit back and wait. So you have to understand what's happening with them. But for us, our strategies really haven't shifted very much at this point. I love that answer. I mean, strategy is long term, you know, and um, I mean, John, you probably don't know this, but in, in, in the military, we have, you know, strategic level of war and we have a tactical level of war. And, you know, it, it's exactly the same, you know, as, as the military answer. You change your tactics. You don't change strategies very often. Great answer. I loved it. Hey, uh, cool. Hey, John, what about um, for new people coming in the industry like me? What's something that you've experienced or you see common in mistakes made with raising capital? Well, I mean, one common thing is just really understanding the deal. You know, your investors are, are entrusting you with their investment. So they're looking at you to be the expert. And I know it's really exciting to just want to run out there and get started. But I would definitely make sure that you thoroughly understand the deal, the business plan, the underwriting, and that you've built a team around yourself to, you know, kind of instill that confidence in them, right? So you don't have to be the expert starting out, but someone on the team needs to know what's going on, right? And, and as you're doing your first deal, it's going to be expected that you don't know all the answers to everything, but you certainly want to surround yourself with a team that can supplement whatever experience you lack. So that's really the first thing is just making sure that you've built a strong team around you. That's going to allow you to be credible and confident. So it's going to be much easier to go out there and talk to investors. I think one of the big mistakes I see is people start having investor conversations and talking to people, but they haven't really built the confidence in themselves and the knowledge and the credibility because they haven't done a deal. So someone starts to question that, you know, it starts Mm -hmm. to fall down. So, you know, focusing on those two things, I think are really important. I kind of have the six C's of what it takes to attract capital consistently. Um, And the first two are confidence and credibility. So I would say focus on those two and that will make life a little bit easier for the rest of it. Yeah, I agree. And, And talking about that team that you're talking about building internally, if you're trying to build a, a company, around yourself, how do you know when it's time to delegate other tasks that you're doing to somebody else to bring it on? Is it, is it when it makes the most financial sense or is it whenever, hey, I, I need to hire an underwriter. I, I just can't underwrite and have investor relation conversations and look at properties all day. There are a couple of different ways to look at that. And what I would say is I would start by identifying which tasks take up the most time and are the least skilled of what you're doing. So underwriting, obviously, I mean, that's a highly skilled thing, right? But let's say um, there might be something else that was more administrative, um, or even if underwriting, then it may be the first blush of a deal, right? Um, But I would take a look at where you're spending your time and what can you offload. So the process there is figure out how you're spending your time. So I would literally go and I would track my time for a week and go in and see how much time did you spend actually underwriting deals? How much time Mm -hmm. did you spend talking to brokers? How much time did you spend talking to investors? Break out all those core things. And then when you go through that, you can see like where your time is basically being wasted is what I'm going to say. And when I say wasted, I'm not saying it was truly wasted because there's stuff that needs to get done, but there's stuff that somebody else may be able to do, right? And it's not going to crush your business if you offload that. So I would take those things and then I would create, um, they call them an SLP, a standard operating procedure, but I would document what the process is to do those things and then I would offload it. So if you're underwriting deals, for instance, 
I would go through how you underwrite deals. I would literally screenshot it. I would record it. I would underwrite. And if it takes you an hour and a half to say, all right, hey, we got this deal from the broker. I'm going to input these numbers. And then I'm going to go look up comps. I'm going to look up whatever. I would go through all of those steps. And then I would identify someone I could offload those responsibilities to. Yeah. No, I like it. Um, Tracking your time. I think that's good. And um, I appreciate that. And then Congrats. I think, what did uh, Brian say? You're on episode 200 of your podcast? Yeah, we just hit 200 episodes, yeah. Well, hopefully uh, my first episode will be coming to, to fruition here soon. What could you... Why hopefully? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm lining up uh, some great interviews right now and, and just... So let's take hopefully out of it. You're, yeah. you're, what you mean to say is your first episode will be coming out soon. It's gonna oh, happen. I like it. Mind shift. It's coming out. Well, hey, All John, right. my first episode's coming out soon. There we go. <laughs> and if you could go back and tell John on episode one something that would be valuable with 200 episodes of experience, what would you tell him? Get more clarity on your goals and objectives with the show and make sure everything you do ties to those goals and objectives. Like I'll that. explain what I mean there. I launched my show, Target Market Insights, and I was really clear that I wanted to bring something different to the marketplace. The show was meant to be more about market research. So if you go back to those first 20 to probably 50 or so episodes, most of them really drill into finding the right markets and sub-markets. I ask questions about you know, your market, what's the population, what metrics do you look for, how do you find the path of progress, how are you looking at development that's happening in the market, how are you weighing you know, um, the net rental growth. I mean, I'm drilling into these kind of questions and I'm asking syndicators and property managers and all these different people. And my vision was actually to talk to government officials and large companies and they were not as willing to come out and share their secrets for by whatever reason. So uh, nonetheless, that was the vision for the show. The only challenge with that was it didn't match up to the personal goals that I had for myself in doing the show because I thought it would be a great platform to connect with investors and grow a brand and all these other things. And those two things didn't really mesh up as well. So what I would say is get clarity on what you want to get out of the show and then make sure you build it that way. The other thing I wanted to get obviously was the secrets, the answers to these questions, which I got. But the challenge there is that once you get the answers to the questions, if you set out to do a show based on learning how to find the best places to invest, at a certain point, you're going to accomplish your goal. Then what? Yeah. <laughs> so, what else is there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we nailed it, you know, new new podcast. Yeah. I so. like it. Man, well, since my first podcast is coming out soon, I'll have you uh listen to it, give me some feedback on if it sounds like I have that clarity. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it comes down to two things, okay? And the two things are what you want out of it, and then two, who do you serve and what do they get out of it? And if you can mesh those two things up and make sure you're building the show in a way that delivers on both of those aspects. You're going to be fulfilled, which is going to excite you because you're getting your goal, right? You're getting what you wanted to get out of it. So you're going to be excited to keep going. And your audience, they're going to get what they need and they're going to be served. So they're going to keep going, you know, and, and that's really the key thing. So for us, what's happened, the reason we've been able to continue doing the show is I had to step back and say, you know what, this is not necessarily the platform for me to get all of the business um, done with our business out of the show. 
Um, that's not exactly what this is doing. But what I found was I was serving a lot of people very similar to you, Cameron, where they were early on, they got great insights from the show. They would reach out to me and thank me for an episode or, or helping them with a piece of insight that no one else has been willing to share in public. So those are the things that led me down the path to say, okay, these are the people who are getting great value out of it. And I enjoy doing the show. I enjoy having these conversations and sharing this. So maybe I just need to kind of shift my focus as far as what my goals are with this endeavor to serve this audience as opposed to trying to go get passive investors just from the show. So mm-hmm. that's something where, again, if you are fulfilled and you're serving an audience and you're passionate and that comes through, then you're going to be successful. So I'd be happy to review the show. More importantly, though, I would say is you have to understand what your goal is with the show and who you serve. Otherwise, me reviewing a show, just it won't really mean anything. You could create the best show ever. But if you're telling me your goal was to, you know, educate people on a specific topic and you don't cover it, then, you know, your show's a miss. So um, you just have to make sure you understand what you're trying to get out of it. Sounds like you're you're saying the same thing again. Strategy first, then adjust tactics to, to meet your strategy. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and let me let me take that even a step further. Is a podcast, and I don't want to be that guy, and we're on a podcast, but is a podcast the right strategy or tactic, I should say? It's a tactic, okay? A podcast is a tactic for a larger strategy. So we kind of have our, our marketing strategy and we have specific things that we want to do in marketing. A podcast is just a tactic though. You know, it's a tactic to help you connect and build your audience, build your connections, um, communicate your POV to the world. Depending on what your actual strategy is and the way you've kind of mapped out your plan, it may or may not fit. I think a podcast works for most people and most strategies, so I don't want to deter you, but you just have to be clear on what the podcast role is. You know, just like if we were doing a marketing campaign, I would say we've got TV, radio, print, we have digital, we have social media, we have events, we have you know so many levers that we can pull to communicate. Well, I have to understand what problem I'm solving so I can understand what marketing tactic I want to use. If we have an awareness issue, I may go with the large television campaign so I can blast it to as many people as possible. If we have a perception issue, a quality issue, I may go with more of an event or promotion where I can kind of have more of a a touch experience, right? Where people can actually get to know someone. And in this case, you kind of have to walk your business the same way and ask yourself, okay, what's the issue that we have here? And then how do I uh, approach that in a way that allows me to overcome it? And again, it may be one spoke on a wheel. So you may have five different things that you decide to do and they all need to work together. Like it. That's good stuff, man. Hello. Hey, Cameron, we got time for one more question. So if you got a, you know, silver bullet still left, you know, time to shoot it now. What is one tactic that you think is going to stand the test of time in capital raising? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm going to treat this like a silver bullet. So I'm going to give you a silver bullet answer. Okay. Great. The one tactic that I think will stand the test of time, it's going to be creating value through email. Okay. And the first part of that is coming up with a stunning and absolutely compelling lead magnet. You have to give something of value that is going to encourage someone to give you their email address. So that is the number one rule that I can give you or the number one tactic because in this sea of information with so much going on in the world and there's so much information, there's so many podcasts, so many blogs, so much 
everything, our email becomes a bit of a sacred place. And it's not just that it's email, it's the fact that we control the message. So in this world where we are just swimming with information, right, there's so much information out there that we really have to focus on how we engage, how we connect with people. And email is a great way to do that because you actually control the email and it's the one platform you control. If you go to social media, you built a huge social media following. Doesn't matter. Facebook's going to determine who gets to see your message and who gets to see your posts. If you build a huge audience on any of the social media platforms, that's the same experience you're going to have. Email is really the one place where you can push messages and get in front of people right away. And if you can build that connection, now you control more of that relationship. So I would say focus on building that, getting the emails, addresses, and getting people into your own database. Nice. Great. Silver bullet. Yeah. Incidentally, you know, I, I was so fascinated by the answer that I just went to your website and put my email in, address in there to see how you do <laughs> things. So there you go. Um, now your, your lead magnet um, on, on your website, you have a sample deal package. Is that what you're, you're using as your lead magnet? That's right. And that goes back to as well as understanding who you serve. Mm-hmm. And that, that's shifted over, the, over some time. But most people I know are, are just, like you said, they're trying to do a deal. Whether you're an active investor or a passive investor, most people want to see what a deal looks like and they haven't seen that and they're not ready to go to an operator and say, hey, I'm interested in seeing a sample deal, but not ready to invest. Seriously, I just want to see a deal. So we decided this was a great way to just kind of put something out there so folks can either A, if they want to see what working with us looks like and just kind of see a sample deal from that standpoint, great. Or if they just want to see what a deal package looks like, how do we stack the marketing terms? How do I structure the deal? You know, what kind of splits do we offer? Why do we offer it that way? So it's a way to at least get people to start educating themselves. And for us, even with our passive investors, we need them to start getting familiar with what to look for. So this is a way for us to get in that process of saying, hey guys, here's the kind of thing you can expect from me. So if you see this, start going through questions or things like that now. So by the time I present a real deal to you, you're kind of prepped and primed as opposed to now you're seeing something for the first time. You don't understand what some of these numbers mean or you don't know what some of the language means. So now we're having to start from scratch. Yeah, I think that's wise. I mean, you got to prime the pump with the investors before, you know, you you can expect to get uh, any water by pulling the handle. And, you know, incidentally, I think we just, uh, we're, we're about ready to launch it. We, we paid a couple thousand dollars getting our lead magnets, you know, primed and ready for prime time. So last question real quick for both of you. Um, and John, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah. I mean, the best thing right now is actually to check out that sample deal if you're interested mm-hmm. in investing or you want to learn more about working together. So you can go to casmincapital.com slash sample deal to check that out. Otherwise, you can check out our podcast, Target Market Insights, the multifamily and marketing show where we cover marketing tips and strategies like we just uncovered here. And we get into everything from building a social media following to email marketing to building a brand, as well as all the multifamily foundational aspects that we talked about as well. All right. Cameron, same question for you. How can listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, you can get in touch with me. You can go to our website. It's goldenandroycapital.com and just enter in the information and contact us. I'll reach out to you. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn and Facebook. So if you're more of a social media person, feel free to connect with me there. I'll be happy to accept and connect whenever is convenient for both of us. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot here. When's your first episode going to release? August 1st. August 1st. There you go. 
Okay. You got any questions about that? I mean, I just went through the process, you know, but we can talk offline on it, but uh, we'd be happy to talk with you. So, hey, John, I appreciate all the wisdom and insight you brought to the show. You know, I really enjoyed your strategy versus tactics portion. Cameron, I think you've absolutely committed to this and, you know, I'm excited to see what, uh, what happens. And, you know, I'm excited to hear about that first deal. And I would absolutely love to bring you back on the show after you get that first deal done and just, you know, we, we can talk about, uh, you know, how you got there. So thanks you two for being on the show today. I think you guys brought a ton of value and I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it, John. It's good to meet you. Likewise. Thank you for having me on, Brian. Appreciate it, Cam. Good to talk to you as well. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.